Welcome to the Gamer's Tavern, episode 11. We kind of knew that this topic was going to be a big one, but I don't really think either Ross nor I understood exactly how big until we finished recording. The finished episode with the raw edit ended up over three hours long. So, what topic could Ross and I possibly talk about for longer than even we talked about Shadowrun? Why, of course, it would be nothing less than the father of modern role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons. Next month marks the 40th anniversary of the first printing of the original boxed set for D&D by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, also known as the White Box. To honor this game, we wanted to talk about the origins of the system, from its roots in wargaming to chainmail through basic first and second edition AD&D. We're talking about the inception and refinement of the biggest thing that's ever happened in tabletop gaming. And if you're curious about 3rd Edition, 3.5, 4th Edition, Pathfinder, the old school renaissance, D&D Next, and what's going to happen in the future of D&D, I unfortunately have to point you to a future episode. Because this was so long, we actually split this into two parts. So it's our first two-part episode here at the Gamer's Tavern, and I'm really thrilled about that. Yeah, it, we rambled so long on this topic, we're making it two parts. Uh, so, go ahead and grab a drink from the bar, sit down at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Have you checked out Audible yet? It's the biggest repository for audiobooks on the internet, with over 100,000 different books. Do you want to check out the Dresden Files series I keep harping about? Or maybe you want to read the Game of Thrones so that the TV series can't spoil you anymore? Or do you want to revisit those old classic Dragonlance and Dritz novels you grew up on? Audible has them all. If you click on the link at GamersTavern.org, you can get a special 30-day free trial of Audible that includes a credit toward a free book. A subscription is only $14.95 afterwards, and if you know that Audible is going to be for you, like I do, you can sign up right away and get your first three months at half off. What happens if you get a membership? Well, you get 30% off of every purchase, plus exclusive membership deals and a free subscription to either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Ready to get started with your Audible experience? Go to GamersTavern.org and click on the Audible link to get started now. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Gamers Tavern. I'm Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we are talking about a granddaddy of the tabletop RPG. We are talking about the Dungeons & Dragons RPG. And the additions throughout that's gotten released. All it, the various versions that you've played over the years. Exactly. So it's and a really big topic. bitched about online constantly. <laughs> it's a really big topic, so actually there's no guests tonight, it's just the two of us. 
But before we get into the meat of all that, we need to kind of cover a little bit of ground because when you, whenever you bring up Dungeons & Dragons, especially recently, and whenever you bring up different editions of Dungeons & Dragons, the first thing you kind of have to address is the issue of edition wars. Or flame wars. <laughs> well, hopefully not flame wars. Let's just get one thing straight. There's no hate on this podcast. We're just going to talk about things from our own perspective through the lenses of our own experiences. Uh, your opinion is your opinion, and we're not going to try and say anything's objectively wrong or bad. Yeah, I have my preference for which edition of D&D I prefer, and that includes Pathfinder and all the OSR and everything else. I appreciate every single edition I have read for its strengths and its weaknesses. I love them all for their own reasons. I can't pick my, I can pick a favorite child, but I still love them all equally. Right. So we're just going to kind of, you know, try and nip that additional war stuff in the bud. We're going to say some things that Daryl and I already agree to. So when we, when we say these things, it's something we, we definitely believe. And number one, we believe that every system, every edition of Dungeons and Dragons included, has its strengths and weaknesses on a mechanical level. They, they all are not perfect, and they are all not terrible. And every edition, thanks to the mechanics and the way they're played out, have their own tone and feel based on how the mechanics affect your ability to tell a story in the system. The key thing here is you, our listeners, you should play the system you like the best, and don't take what anybody else says, especially what we say, as trying to stop you from playing something you enjoy. Exactly. So we are going to just talk about Dungeons and Dragons and kind of briefly kind of go over some of the things that make these things special to us. And I think we should probably start with the basic set, because that's the, the kind of origins of Dungeons and Dragons. 1974, the now, original you know, box set was released. Yeah, which is a year before I was born. So there you go. And six years before I was born, so you'll understand why I'm a little bit hazy on the first couple <laughs> editions here. And, uh, you know, I think neither one of us is like a super scholar on, on like the origins of Dungeons and Dragons, but we, we have talked to some people who know things. And if you, if you want like a really comprehensive breakdown, I would urge you to check out Shannon Applecline's book, Designers of Dragons. But we will say what we know. To be, to be true, and of course there's Wikipedia if you want to, like, you know, hit up some even more of these bullet points. But, so and I'm going to make sure to include in the show notes the many, many links yes. to the history of Dungeons & Dragons so you can yes. always read more on your own time. So something that's really important to note, Dungeons & Dragons was actually originally a tabletop war game, miniature war game uh, rule set. Chainmail. Uh, that's right. And basically, uh, Gary Gygax and his friends said, you know, would, wouldn't it be interesting to since they had armies of, like, elves and, and guys on horseback knights, you know, things like that. They said, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we had rules for just, like, a small band of these guys, kind of like the Fellowship of the Ring, you know? Well, it was pretty much uh, Dave Arneson that came up with the idea of doing one player, one character. He was doing that in his Napoleonic War games that he was using the Chainmail rules for. And that's how Gar uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson met up. So... It was through mutual friends. Yeah, just to... Just to, to kind of, you know, put this into perspective, you know, this was a period of time where games, particularly hobby games and particularly war games, were very complex and the rules were very granular. Uh, this was the early days of kind of understanding how, you know, these kind of games work. So there was a style that pretty much everyone kind of had accepted. It was the, the very, you know, crunchy rule sets. Yeah, you hear me joke all the time on here about Hero System and Rifts and everything else. No, these games had nothing on the old school war games. Even Avalon Hill stuff is simple compared to the old, like, 
50s and 60s war games that were coming out. You know what, and, and what's interesting, just even to take a little side trip on that, you know how over time, you know, role players, we've seen, you know, things kind of come and go, and we've seen things like the card games kind of push into our territory, and you hear a lot of role players, you know, at the time going, oh, those darn card gamers, they were kind of taking over our game stores, grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, what was funny is what was happening right after Dungeons & Dragons got big was that the war gamers, the old school war gamers, they were saying the same thing about role playing. They're like, role-playing's taking over our game stores where we used to just play our little war games all the time. You know, what's going on? And I really want to point out here that when we're talking about war gamers, we're not talking about, like, Warhammer 40K with the awesome painted minis and anything. We're talking about these guys would buy literally envelopes with cardboard punch-out chits on a hex paper that was tiny. And these guys would spend hours pouring over these things and running right. all these military simulations. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure oh, those it is are com- really fun. Oh, I, play, I played many of them. They're fascinating as hell. They are really hard to understand if you don't know what you're doing or you don't have a good teacher, but right. they are a blast to and play. And some, some of them probably were miniature gamers, but, but I would agree with you that the majority at this time when we're talking about war gamers, the majority are the chit, the, the guys who use the little chits and things like that. Yeah, miniature wargaming was just starting to start up when Chainmail came out. Yeah, and that's so, what Chainmail's big thing was. It had rules for using your actual 15 millimeter painted Napoleonic miniatures in war games, and then they moved into medieval stuff, which brought us to uh, the basic set, right? Exactly. And you know what's funny? I I've seen a a friend of mine bought a copy of the original white box set, and I think it's being re-released really soon, isn't it? Uh, it's coming out this month. It's actually on. I tried to get it on Quint's holiday list for this year, but he neglected to put it on. But it's coming out. It's either... By the time you hear this podcast, it will be out. It's like $100, $150, something like that. I'll put a link in the show notes to it, but it's a complete reprint of the first six booklets that came out. Right. And it's in a very, very nice carved wooden box and everything. It is gorgeous and... I'm planning on getting a copy, for sure. I would love to get a copy. I have no desire whatsoever to try to play those rules. <laughs> but the history and the craftsmanship and the collectability of that set, I want it so bad because it looks so gorgeous. But that's one of the things I wanted to bring up about the original, not the BX and BCMI, but the original basic rulebook was it was written for people who had experience in war games. So yes. the rules were very hard to understand if you weren't already a gamer. You know, I got to be honest with you. I've never played the box, uh, the white box set. Um, the very first edition I ever played was the red box by Metzner, which is one of yep. the uh, the That's base. A, that was BX, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, and um, God, it's it, was, you're really taking me back here because it's been a lot. You know, we're talking. 30 years ago? So. Yeah, was it, was it Metzner or Molde that did the... Uh, Molde, one of them did uh, BX and then one of them did uh, BECMI. See, this is where my lack of expertise uh, kind of hurts me on this. Is I, I honestly don't remember which was which. But there was two red box sets. I had both of them. And uh, one of them had the Errol Otis, Errol Otis cover and one had the Elmore cover. But anyway, that's that's really where I got started playing was, was in that particular basic set period. Um, and I really liked it. Um, you know, I, we've talked a little bit before about like, you know, the Caves of Chaos and Alina and Bargle and all that is from that basic set. Mm-hmm. Um, and Keep on the Borderlands and In Search of the Unknown. You remember that module? Oh yeah, I've, got, I've actually been trying to work on a conversion of that to update that to the new play, te- 
new playtest edition, which we'll get into later, but I've been working on that and uh, a first edition module that we're going to talk about later, which is uh, Temple of Elemental Evil. If it's okay but, with you, I'd actually like to talk a little bit about um, In Search of the Unknown. Oh, please do. I, it is a great... It is the second best introductory adventure behind Keep on the Borderlands. Well, here's the thing about In Search of the Unknown. It is a classic. I love it. I think... For me, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, looking back on it now, though, I think it, it encourages a particular style of play. And I think that the people who, who bought and used In Search of the Unknown, like myself, you know, kind of took our cue from that as this is how you're supposed to play D&D. That it is pretty much all about the dungeon crawls and figuring out, you know, the mystery behind the dungeon and having those kind of weird random things like the, the room full of pools. <laughs> and, and those are all cool. Um, but for for me, for many many years, that's because because I that's what um, I thought D and D was. You know, I didn't really understand quite all the cool things you can do from a role playing, storytelling, character immersion point of view. And I think that's unfortunately, I think that's kind of the the, the downside or the flaw to um, in search of the unknown. Because otherwise, it is a really great. I love the backstory to it. Yeah, it is a brilliant dungeon crawl adventure. It is not the sandbox that Keep on the Borderlands was. Right. Which was, that involved a lot more elements where it was a lot more fill in the blank compared compared yeah. to, there were, Keep on the Borderlands became the classic module because that's the one that almost everyone who bought the red box got B2, Keep on the Borderlands, in that red box. Yeah, yeah. And the earlier editions had Into the Unknown, and that was also one of the first introductory adventures that they had written for Dungeons and Dragons at the time. Yeah. And it was two different approaches to how to introduce someone to the game. Yep. Keep on the Borderlands is really more of a tool for DMs to kind of yeah. put their own mark on a campaign and was trying to encourage you to create your own thing because it was more along the lines of, here's the keep. Here's what all the little buildings in the keep are. Here's the Caves of Chaos. Here's what lives in the Caves of Chaos. Have fun. Yeah, and you're and right. It was up I to mean, you to create the stories. It was, and, and here's the thing. is like when I'm... My young eight-year-old mind, when I was looking at this stuff, I just, I just couldn't grasp the keep on the borderlands, unfortunately. And I didn't have, I was teaching myself. I didn't have anyone to really show me what it was supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. So, I, that, I mean, that's kind of why I fell into and embraced wholeheartedly the, essentially, uh, unknown approach, because that was something I could, you know, my young mind was like, oh, okay, I get this. You know, this is what this is what it's supposed to be about. So you could say my earliest memories of Dungeons and Dragons, especially the basic set are all around Dungeon Crawls, pretty much like all Dungeon Crawls all the time. And I just wanted to make that clear, you know, up front. Yeah, and a lot of those first adventures that came out for for, uh, for basic D&D were very Dungeon Crawl adventures, including probably one of the most iconic, and it was an adventure path before that became a thing, which was the giants leading to the drow in the Underdark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. led to the uh, battling Loth. Yeah, that was uh, I, f- I forget what that's called, but against the giants is the first one in that. Set, yeah, against the gi- against the giant. Gi- uh, crap, I can't remember the whole sequence, but it yeah. uh, it was all collected in Queen of the Spiders, and I it believe. is fantastic. It is it is such a portal into Gary's mind. That's the yeah. thing I love about it is you kind of see all the crazy little sort of fun creative trips that his mind was taking when he was designing things for Dungeons and Dragons because there's still there's still elements of that. Adventure line that I think are just un- unspeakably epic. 
And it really spoke to a specific style of adventure writing that is yes. completely lost in this day and age, which <laughs> I'm honestly am not sure is a bad thing per well, se. But yeah, you know, it is a product of its times. It is um, a product of its time. But there's but parts that a, still make me say, "Wow!" I mean, oh, there's that that vampire's castle with the hallway with doors that open to other worlds. Remember that? Not off the top of my head. Oh my god, it's one. so amazing! It's in um, it's in one of the later one of the later adventures, but you find I this, you I find this castle. I only really went through a D1 and D2. I, like I said, I'm 33 years old, okay. so I'm a little bit on the young side for a lot of these first edition stuff, but I got into the big nostalgia thing, right. and I ran conversions of these in Pathfinder for well, D1 and D2, but again, we'll get to Pathfinder later on in the podcast, but right. one thing I really wanted to touch on was a lot of these early edition books were written in a specific way that is... Very hard for a modern gamer to grasp, but there's actually a story going on because it isn't spoon-fed to a DM when they're reading the module. It is, as they're getting to every single room, they'll find a scrap of paper from so-and-so that says this, and and it leads yeah. one chain to another. And you have to uncover it the same way your players would uncover it as they're exploring the dungeon. It's not, here's the big long text of what the adventure is going to be, now just here's what's in every single room. It's more of like an excuse to show really cool stuff, you know, little little packets of encounters that are meant like, ooh, wow, this encounter is cool because of these things. But there isn't, yeah, it's 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 a different approach. It's very unique. And it's very 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 subtle writing. You have to read <laughs> every single page of every single one of those, which yeah. I can understand. Modern game design sensibilities have shifted away from that because reduced attention spans, and everything else. But in the seventies and eighties the hell else were you going to do? You put on your Led Zeppelin record and you sit there and read the adventure module four or five times in a row. Well, yeah, and, and I got to be, you know, completely honest with you is that, you know, the parts I remember are awesome because, you know, my mind was you know, just really focusing on everything we did, right? Uh, but looking back on it now, like trying to trying to imagine myself playing through it now, you, I don't think you would get a really good experience out of it without a lot of DM fiat, you know, bringing in other things, you know, different counters for your characters to riff off of and, and you know, get that role-playing, storytelling, character Cause, immersion bits. Because a lot of those were really built around random encounter tables, yeah. Yeah. and that's what, kind of where a lot of the stories for individual players came out were through those random encounters. <laughs> if you want to talk about random encounters, D1, uh, the first Underdark Adventure, I'm sorry, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but it was the first one. It's after... You have gone through all the giants, and you right. find out that the drow were, were kind of rousing them up, and yep. you're chasing them into the Underdark to go into the drow city and all that. The D1 module is nothing but here is a map of the Underdark and a bunch of tunnels. Here are some close-up maps of the various tunnels you can use. Here is a shitload of random encounters, and that was almost literally all the adventure was. It wasn't you know, until you got to D2 <laughs> where you met the Troglodyte City that any sort of actual linear plot started to develop. And if you looked at my my like uh, junior high school and grade school notebooks, you'd see tons of maps like this. Oh, yeah. Because that's what I was doing. I was like, oh, I'm going to draw. I, I want to make a big-ass dungeon and all well, these cool, you know, bizarre. I wanted to do, like, a big Underdark Drow City. And, and, and this was all, you know... It was it was sort of proto world building and proto encounter building, but it was more it was it was almost entirely focused on the mechanics of combat and tactics and things like that. It really very very little having to do with story, and which was kind of strange because character. 
the the way the rules were written for basic which really changed when it shifted over to advanced dungeons and dragons was basic was really meant built around this concept of you already know how to run a game with war gamers especially in the earlier versions the later versions when they got tooled with some fixed a lot of these issues with bx and becm becmi jesus christ um <laughs> Uh, but a lot of those got fixed with that, but in the earliest editions of the game, you're expected to know how to run a tabletop combat game on your own. The rules were really built around something that's become a buzzword recently, which is rulings over rules. That's an interesting philosophy that we should probably define a little more. Rulings over rules is the concept between how much should be prescribed by the game mechanics themselves and how much should be left to the dm's hands to figure out how to adjudicate so for example and this is again skipping way ahead in the timeline fourth edition dungeons and dragons was very 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 much rules over rulings you could almost run a dmless game of fourth edition because the mechanics took care of themselves and the monsters were written with, like, per-round actions. Like, they're exactly. going to do the first round, they do this, second round, they do this. Exactly. And that's what rules over ruling is. It's that is, the mechanics are so well-defined and so well-balanced that you don't have to interpret anything. The way I've always heard it described was, in a scenario, in a game. You're the thief, you see the scout from the enemy troops. You're standing on the top of the wall to the keep or whatever, and you look down and you see him. Okay, I'm going to jump off the roof and hold my sword down under me so that all my weight comes down on the sword and impales him with it. In a rules-based system, what the DM would then do is look up the rules for jumping, landing, weight, falling, crushing damage, so on and so forth, and doesn't have any sort of fiat to kind of shift things up and change things. But isn't there always a rule zero? I mean, can't you always well, sort of yes, invoke I, I, the idea that the game master can... I, I, and that's one of the misconceptions about 4th edition. Again, we'll get into that later. But the idea is that if you're going to play strictly by the rules, you have to look up the rules and blah, blah, blah. In rulings over rules, you say, okay, that's really cool. What happens is you do this and blah, blah. And you just... On the fly, the DM makes rules calls. And that's the big difference. The DM making a ruling versus the rules on the paper. Okay, well, that's an interesting... That, that is a very interesting topic because it, it, it definitely can apply to a lot of different situations. I Personally, as a GM, I like to be the guy who is the you know who makes rulings and let the rules be you know more of a guideline than an absolute sort of cage, you know, so to, be, so to speak. But that... Uh, but at the that's same time, that's complete running at the style. Same time, well, but yeah, but at the same time, I, I I enjoy a system greatly that has a lot of these things defined ahead of time. You know, I enjoy the idea that I don't have to do it very often. I would if if it was for those rare circumstances where a player decides to do something cool and creative and fun. That's where I you know get excited and have a good time with it. But if I have to make stuff up for things that seem relatively simple or relatively like you know why didn't they think of this you know. That's probably where I would say I'm not as big a fan of that particular approach. Okay, and and one thing we absolutely have to talk about while we're still on basic is all the side stuff that started coming out at this time. This was before open gaming license, before anything like that, but there were still... D&D &D kind of 
blew up the gaming world. Yes, it did. And there were all kinds of fanzines and magazines, both like really limited run prints and big, huge, giant publications. Polyhedron. Polyhedron, Dungeon, Dragon... Uh, no, Dungeon Magazine didn't even come in until way late in first edition, didn't it? White Dwarf. Yeah, White Dwarf. All these game magazines were publishing what was, quote-unquote, official content, which is something in this day and age of you must strictly enforce your IP would never happen. And it was kind of open gaming. There were companies that were licensing from TSR to publish these modules that are completely off the wall and different, including Games Workshop was publishing D&D yeah. material. Yeah, they were. Um, well, the, Games Workshop, believe it or not, published uh, material for a ton of different games, including Traveler. But that's a conversation we can probably go back to in a different later show, because Games Workshop is a is a, is a subject that would probably fill an entire show. Oh, no question. So, you know, when we're talking about basic, you're t you're talking about games that uh, also you should we should also mention that there were a lot of games that were a lot like D and D, Rune Quest, Tunnels and Trolls. Um, and I believe Talisman came out about the same time, didn't it, the first edition? Uh, you know, I don't know. Talisman's, you know, in my opinion, Talisman's a little more board gamey, but, um, but, but I mean, Hero Quest it built, certainly. It built know? on those same things. Hero Quest didn't come out until way later. Hero Quest was my generation. Oh, okay, if you're certain, so, I, I seem to recall. Yeah, Hero, earlier, Hero, Quest, Hero Quest was 86, I believe. Maybe I'm thinking of something else then. Uh, 80, but there were 86, certainly, 87. There were certainly board games that were aping Dungeons and Dragons. There was Dark Tower, of course. Um, and of course, Dungeon from TSR. And of course, Dungeon, yes. But let's actually. I'm going to skip a, you know, a little head in the timeline, but I'm going to stay in basic because basic D and D hung around for a long time. The there was basically two periods where I really really enjoyed it. And basic I really enjoyed when I first started playing, and basic I I enjoyed in the early '90s as well. Uh, Roll Cyclopedia. Probably all I know is that there was a bunch of titles that said Dungeons and Dragons on the cover, and okay. I, I I believe this is still basic. It was just sort of an advanced basic, you know. For for you kids out there. Basic Dungeons & Dragons and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons had a split in the late 70s, I want to say 78, 79, where that was the first edition of AD&D was published during this time, and it was also the first time that, I actually looked it up, Metzer published the first basic D&D, and then uh, Mold Moldvay came in later and did the BECMI, and BECMI was eventually... Uh, booked into one thing and given some updates and errata and rules tweaks into rules yeah. exactly but so so in the 80s i guess i let's let's back up just a little bit but in the 80s there was a slew of material for greyhawk that had come out oh yeah um, and there, let's just briefly touch on uh, greyhawk and blackmore blackmore was like the first in my uh, my understanding is it was the first Black, campaign setting yeah blackmore was the first campaign setting that was what uh, dave arneson started running right. before the before this was in seventy two, I want to say, is when he started that campaign seventy two or seventy three, and then that's when the, one of their Dave and Gary's mutual friends drove Gary up to Dave Arneson's basement where he was running these games, and showed him. As, and that's when D and D was formed. Was when he saw what Arneson was doing with uh, Blackmore, which was this sort of uh, each person plays one thing, and Arneson is the one who came up with the idea of classes levels experience points things like that what we a lot of what we consider the and i really have to bring this up and i'm sorry to the gary gygax fans out there gary gygax was a genius he is a god among men i do not mean to speak ill of the man but to a lot of people 
and I'm not going to say whether I'm one of those or not, but I think it's kind of obvious from the way I'm talking that I am. There is an idea that Gary Gygax is to Dave Arneson as Stan Lee is to Jack Kirby. Well, and I think that's that's not a terrible analogy just because both men, Stan Lee and Gary Gygax, both men went through several phases of their life. I mean, if you look at 1960s Stan Lee versus 1990s Stan Lee versus 2011 Stan Lee, mm-hmm. right? They're different people. Yes. People change. Stan has certainly changed. I believe that Gary changed. I believe that oh, Gary yes. went through periods of time where, where Gary Gary's attitude specifically was was not good for the gaming industry but there were times when gary was its leading and most prominent cheerleader and spokesman and there were times when gary you know did some wonderful things for gaming so i think you know in terms of the man's overall you know life lifetime i think there's you know you can sort of talk about it in different oh, there's, phases there's, right like i said there's no question that gary gygax is one of yeah. the patron saints of gaming right total yeah, yeah, and and I, you know, the, let's you put let's, him up yeah. with the guy who developed Monopoly in terms right. of tabletop gaming in general. So, but just, yeah, just be just to be aware that there is some kind of controversy about yeah, the contributions. I'm, I'm an Ar- I'm an Arneson fan. That's all I'm going to say about. Well, uh, pro- I'll probably say something else about that <laughs> later on. But okay, yeah, well, it's, it's but, let, yeah, let's. Just I, say I love I Gary Gygax. Can... Gary Gygax is awesome. Some of his adventures, like yeah. I mentioned, many of them already yeah. are some of my favorites ever written. But in and without terms him, of there who wouldn't be, does, there wouldn't who be came up with gaming, a lot of the core concepts were actually developed by Dave Arneson, and Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax together refined them into Dungeons and Dragons. So let's just let's just say that we. You admire and respect both men. I think we can agree to that. Exactly. Okay. We admire and respect both men. So Blackmore, uh, as I was saying, was the first sort of campaign setting for Dungeons and Dragons. And unfortunately, I would have to say Blackmore is kind of fallen by the wayside. It's it's really only, you know, a very few people in terms of kind like of? a small percentage of gamers there, these days really even know it existed. Yeah, really really kind of understand yeah, what it Yeah, it, it got pushed way to the side. Yeah. It was and to be honest, as much as I love Dave Arneson, like I said, I worship both men as patron saints of gaming. My particular temple to Dave Arneson may be a little bit bigger than my one to Gygax, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, but it's, Blackmore didn't really grip me nearly as much as Greyhawk did, which Greyhawk was, of course, Gary Gygax's baby. Yeah, and I will say this. I thought Greyhawk... And, and I'm kind of with you on this. Is like you know the, what little I do know of Blackmore, just doesn't excite me very much. I mean, it, I'm it, it, I'm saying this you know with all respect to the man Dave Arneson, I'm I'm sure that if he were running the game, I would probably love it a lot more. But just from like looking at it, you know, from an outsider's perspective, uh, Greyhawk lit my imagination on fire in a lot of ways where I don't think Blackmore just really did. Of course, some of this was due to not just Gary, though, because Gary, um, you know, there, there were a lot of cool things great in Greyhawk that did come from Gary. But in the '80s, there was some really great gazetteers that came out for Greyhawk, mm-hmm. and they were written by some really fantastic authors like Aaron Alston, and they really built up the world of of Greyhawk. There was, you know, the uh, the, the caliphates of of uh, all these, I can't remember the titles, but there was one about dwarves and one about shadow elves. There was one about, 
you know, this sort of and you can get this even from, even if you read just the big the quote unquote big modules for Greyhawk, like yeah. for example, Village of Hamlet T one, the intro to Temple of Elemental Evil, which is come on, admit it pretty much the quintessential dungeon crawl adventure it is yeah absolutely i agree so, so yeah there's just i mean even when you read that you can stuff. just see there was so much going yeah. on in that world where you're all you're doing is your plant your characters are playing this one little piece of the pie and you get this feeling of a big huge giant there's more going on in this world than you can possibly imagine and that's where the mi part of the b-e-c-m-i came in which is when you started getting those world-shattering Isn't that stand for, uh, like, Masters and Immortals? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to close out, I think, you know, before, I'm, I'm going to basically stop talking about basic here because there isn't much more I can really say. Yeah. But there's one campaign setting that is my absolute favorite for basic setting, and it's a um, setting that was really only, like, one little booklet and a, a, a packet of, like, four other booklets. So it's, like, a mini setting. It's basically just, like, one little... Like, well, uh, to, to to kind of break it... The original Greyhawk and Blackmore were just, like, these 32-book saddle-stapled Yeah, I'm, I'm saying so. this, one, though, this one, though, is even less... I mean, there's probably more material for Blackmore than there is for this setting. But it was called Thunder Rift. And it came out in 1992, so it's a very latecomer to basic. But it was written by Colin McComb. Colin is, he's, I've interviewed him on my blog. He's a, a fantastic writer. He's the, one of the minds behind Planescape Torment. He uh, worked on Fallout. And oh, okay, stuff. that's where I know that name. Yeah, okay. Colin, Colin McComb is a very, also Birthright. He's one of the minds behind Birthright, which is another of my favorite settings we will talk about I was about, about to later. say, we're not going to talk about Birthright whatsoever at all when we oh. second edition, are so, we? So, so <laughs> it's fair to say, Thunder Rift, though, what I think is beautiful about Thunder Rift is in a just a small booklet, Colin packs just tons and tons of adventure seeds, and I could... Whenever I read Thunder Rift and sit down and just kind of, you know, flip through that that little booklet, I I immediately think I could run an entire campaign here in this setting without a problem. So I I'll I'll, I'll kind of stop there because there um there's some other books that came out for Thunder Rift after um the core book, but none of them are by Colin and they're all I I can't really recommend any of them as being uh, if equality. And... Let, let's just say none of them expanded my mind quite as much as the core book because <laughs> there's no hate. So let's let's go ahead and move forward to uh yeah the let's... the the uh, the split between basic right. and advanced D and D which well one thing I want to get into one, is... one last thing one last oh thing. just just so you know now we're gonna move away from basic D and D but if anybody ever asks you how you know how you can tell if something is basic D and D the easy answer is is elf a class <laughs> or dwarf depending on yeah elf you dwarf and halfling I. I watch a lot of Dungeon Bastard, so... So any of those... If any of those races are actually, like, classes... Ra yeah, there were no race-class splits. If you yeah. were... That's you were You were a fighter, magic user, or thief... I'm oh, sorry, fighting man, magic user, or thief, elf, halfling, dwarf. Those were the classes slash races. And you were there kind was of dumb no... if you weren't an elf. I mean, it was... It was, like, the obvious good choice, you know? Oh, elves were so broken they were, early well, on. Let's just even look, in yeah. Even in AD&D, they were broken as hell, which, again... Let's uh, talk the, about ADD now. So advanced yeah, the reason why there, the reason why there was a split between the two, for the record, as far as I've been able to research it, is because of, like I was saying, that kind of 
split between rules versus rulings. Gary Gygax really wanted to push D&D toward rules. And the idea behind basic and advanced wasn't supposed to be, okay, you start off in basic and then you move to advanced like you might expect. It was more along the lines of basic is more here is a framework and your DM is going to have to fill in a lot of the blanks and call a lot of, make a lot of audible calls to pull in a sports metaphor for some reason. And advanced was a lot more prescribed actions. It was a lot more rules. It was a lot more dense in terms of how things were going on, not just in combat, because again, these guys came from wargaming where everything was rules-based, but a lot more social and interact. Everything had a role for it. Well, this is where we started seeing rules that weren't just combat, though, either. We started seeing things like non-weapon proficiencies, and it really started to give you a structure and a verisimilitude for things that you did that weren't just dungeon crawling. You know, like I said, like, that that quintessential example of the thief standing on top of the on top of the wall, him jumping down. There's now a non-weapon proficiency wall climbing and jump skill. You roll your percentage based on the table for the thief over whether or not he can climb the wall or whether or not he can jump. Well, I think for me, like, I've, I started playing an awful lot of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons very early on. And that's partially because of the title. I mean, I was a, I was a smart kid. I considered my friends smart. And I said, we should be playing Advanced. Why are we playing baby basic? <laughs> we need to play Advanced. Uh, but seriously, um, I think Advanced is actually the first time that the books started speaking to me about the game taking place not just in a dungeon. They started talking about having adventures in cities. They started talking about, you know... Um, wilderness. There was a lot wilderness of wilderness. And, and building your, 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 your keeps and things like that. There was just a little more... For me, first edition d is where it started to really open up the game beyond just, we're going to go kick in the door and kill some orcs. We're going to actually you know have more story with it. And part of that is because um, I was just a huge reader at the time. And the Dragonlance books had come out. Oh. And Dragonlance... That's something we should really talk about are the novels that started coming out in yeah. first edition. But well, there was, we'll get to that in a moment. Well, I mean, there's a lot of Gary Gygax books from Greyhawk that I still actually really enjoy. Um, Gord the Rogue uh, is one of those. And the Elminster um, books, of course. Well, Elminster is kind of more second edition, I think, than first. But um, specifically, I'm thinking like the really... Because there were these choose-your-own-adventure books. Not Elminster, shit. Who's the other one? Because Elminster was... Forgotten Realms. Yeah, and then there was the Greyhawk version of Elminster, almost. <laughs> well, uh, there's a bunch of powerful wizards in Greyhawk. I mean, I don't even want to try and... One of the triumphant who used to, in uh, Dungeon Magazine or Dragon Magazine, had their conversations where they would meet up on this alternate plane, which is where the parody adventure Castle Greyhawk came from, was that apparently he was this wizard whose name escapes me. It's not Mordenkainen, stupid... is it? Yes! Mordenkainen. Okay. okay, so Mordenkainen. He, he was apparently really a movie producer name. on our Earth, according well, to the Castle Greyhawk adventure. It's a really great name for a wizard, I just want to point that out. Um, oh, no question about that. But there there were these choose-your-own-adventure books that were, they were written by Rose Estes, um, I honestly can't remember the titles of them, but there were quite a few of those that I had also grabbed and read my way through. So the novels were very heavily supporting me through Advanced Dungeons and Dragons by giving me more ideas of doing story-based things. 
go ahead, Daryl. I've been talking for a while, so I want to make sure you get to say what you want to say about first edition. So well, absolutely, please chime in. I came into first edition way late in the game. I came into it almost at an OSR level, which we're going to get into old school Renaissance later. Because, I, again, I was born in 1980. I grew up in an area where D&D is damber. Everyone believed the chick tracks and everyone believed mazes and monsters was real. <laughs> so I didn't play a lot of D&D growing up. It wasn't until second edition that I started even D&D hitting my radar. Because, like I said on many podcasts before... I came into it through this weird backdoor through Battletech and Shadowrun and HeroQuest. Well, wasn't so. First Edition kind of where we started to get beyond just the four classes as well? We we started bringing in things like oh, barbarians, God, and cavaliers, more... and assassins. Bards. Oh, that's when we had bards and oh, bards. Oh, druids. I really think this is where people started hating bards. Was First Edition when they first came out. Not because bards were bad in first edition. Bards they were, were really good, fucking badass in first edition. <laughs> but you had to but be it like was impossible to you become had to be a bard. A level, you had, you had to, to be a, th- a level twelve yeah. thief and then go back and train to level eight. No, no, I'm sorry. Fighter first, then thief, then magic user, then you started off at level one again as a bard. It was a, it was a tough road to hoe, but you were kind of a badass if you were a bard. Yeah. And but they, these but, stat so, requirements were insane. So this Same is the, kind of the hallmark of first edition is it starts again, you know, it starts to really bring you out of that classic dungeon crawling team and give you more options. Monks, rangers, you know. Which is one of those weird things. I've never quite understood why monks were ever a thing in D&D. I, I, I'm not. Comp- I'm not complaining. Do not get me wrong. I'm a big fan of Shaw Brothers and all those old school kung fu movies. But the hell were they doing in a ve- a guy who the Gary Gygax was so obsessed with almost Renaissance medieval level technology oh. that he wrote up stats for fourteen different fucking pole arms. Well, yeah, the Bohemian ear spoon, the the Voulge, the Sarmi glaive. Oh. You know what's? Oh, we should actually mention something else too. But um, but why? First what of all, the hell did monks first, come into that? First, I'm going to talk about monks. I I have a hypothesis. It's not really an answer, but it's a hypothesis. I'll take and what that, I can get. <laughs> my theory is that at the time in the 70s, martial arts was were big. You know, kung fu fighting was was on number Bruce one Lee. on the track. Bruce Lee was huge. Everybody probably everybody around Gary at the time was talking about martial arts. So I imagine, you know, he was just like, oh, you know, because this is a cultural thing of this era, maybe I should put it in. But, you know, one thing we did, we forgot to mention, actually, is um, Gary was incredibly influenced by Lord of the Rings. And in fact... Uh, not if you ask him. Well, if, in fact... <laughs> Gary Gygax sued. claimed up and down that well, Tolkien <laughs> was not an influence on D&D whatsoever the, at they all. Had to, they had to sue, though, to get Hobbits changed. <clears throat> After Christopher Tolkien's taken food out, and, um, there were there were many things that had come over from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Baylor's Ents, and Hobbits were all part of D anD D at one point and had to be litigated uh, you mean, out. You mean halflings, treants, and uh, Baylor's, uh, not Balrogs, right? Yeah, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> is like there was a, there's a clear influence, like as it was so strong that it led to a lawsuit. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> 
but, uh, but yeah, please go ahead. We we were talking honestly, about the monk. I I, I was going to say the yeah the unquestionably the biggest influence on D and D in terms of fantasy authors has to be Jack Vance. Well, Vance was an influence. I mean, you, if okay, let's talk about influences because in first edition we had a lot of actual like novels being cited left and right. Jack Vance's Dying Earth is where the magic system came from. Exactly. And Fafford, every Fafford and the Green single Mouser. person who has ever played a wizard in a first through third yeah. edition or basic game has some sort of voodoo doll to Jack Vance. Well, that's true, but at low levels, was, at least it wasn't just Vance though, because there was once Fafford, we hit fit, once we hit fifth, woohoo! Well, there was there's also Fafford and the Green Mouser and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nawan. There was Michael Moorcock and all of his stuff was it was an obvious influence. And, of course, the Conan novels were a huge influence Conan novels, well. absolutely. All of these things were, were clear and present and, and connected intimately with Dungeons and Dragons. To the point where the, the Nawan gods were in the Deities of Demigods book. The, the uh, Cthulhu gods were in the Deities of Demigods book. Yeah. Michael Moorcock's, uh, you know, kind of where the, the alignment system comes from. And there's just like there's just Which a lot of little is going to get its links. own entire podcast. Yeah, but there's just an awful lot of little links to classics fantasy literature for first edition Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. um, and I guess even just the genesis of Dungeons and Dragons in itself. But we we've wandered a bit afar. afar. Is there anything else we want to talk about with first edition Dungeons and Dragons? There was a lot of weirdness in first edition. The foremost of which I already mentioned, which was. These very, very Eastern mythology-influenced monks, right. which were based on, obviously, the Shaolin monks. But there was a lot of weird crap they were trying to pull in first edition when it came to a lot of... And I've got to bring up Expedition to Barrier Peaks. Right, which, spoiler alert, involves an alien ship uh, with laser guns and, and power armor. High technology. Yeah. Well, I think, here's the thing, is like D&D was blowing up at the time right? It was just huge. And they were exploring different ways to offer role-playing as an experience to people. They had, you know, Star Frontiers, they had uh, Boot Hill, they had uh, freaking Gangbusters, you remember? <laughs> they, 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 for some reason, they thought it would be, you know, the people really were hankering to play uh, 1920s uh, mobsters, so they created a role-playing game for it. Unfortunately, uh, that did not did not turn out to be a good move for them. Just bad timing, because if they pulled that shit out now, well, I'd be all over it. I, it's, I still don't think it would be a huge seller. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah. Boot Hill probably could have done really, really well um, if it was developed differently. But there was also, um, the, like, Top Secret. And let's just say that they were experimenting, I think. For me, that's, like, where I see First Edition is Advanced Dungeons Dragons is that period of time where they were like, well, let's see what else we can do and as with weird, our stuff. And this is the thing I always bring up. Every single time I talk about first edition D&D, for some reason, Expedition to Barrier Peaks is always at the top of my mind. And on one hand, I hate that adventure. Not for any mechanical reason. Not for anything that they did wrong. But just because, the hell are you doing bringing space aliens into medieval fantasy? I don't want the ship from E.T. crashing into Middle-Earth. Well, let's be fair, a lot now, of players have fond memories of that adventure now, because it was different. Saying Now, saying that is the reason why I don't like it. I like 
the idea behind it and that they were playing. They were trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. Because, again, this was a brand new thing. No one had ever done anything like this before. They were trying to merge and meld genres that were appealing to the people who are buying the games. The same people who buy fantasy role-playing games are the same sort of people who are going eight times to see Star Wars in the theaters. Well, and this so, is kind of the thing about Barrier Peaks is that it was so unique at the time is that people, you know, old school gamers, all you have to do is mention that and they instantly know what you're talking about. It was it was the game, it was the adventure everyone was talking about at that time. Yeah, and like I said, I I don't like the final product in from a modern perspective. I don't like Barrier Peaks. Okay, that's looking yeah, that's fine. looking in context of the time period. I love Barrier Peaks because. I can see what they were trying to do. They were trying to do something new and fresh and interesting. And that is one of the things that made first edition so cool was they were trying so many things. They were throwing so much crap against the wall and seeing what stuck. And I think, I mean, this is probably a good time to to shift gears into second edition because they tried things like this in late second edition as well. And I think it didn't, like, I think where Barrier Peaks succeeded, some of these later ones didn't. There was an adventure that took place entirely inside a giant lich's body for example, and I was like, yeah, that's a gimmick I don't really care for. You know, I don't remember that one. It was, it was. I don't remember the title of it either. Um, maybe the <laughs> listeners can correct us on all these titles we can't remember. Yeah, please leave a comment. Please Let leave a know. comment about these things, because we can't remember all kinds of I things. got a shelf full of the damn things. I don't remember this one at all. It was, it was, I didn't care for it. It was too gimmicky. So second edition, for me, like I talked about, you know, I started playing advanced as soon as I could. Second edition advanced is where I just played... This is like my junior high through early Army experience. So so years and years and years of second edition I played. Which, surprisingly enough, uh, at least for me, born in 80, second edition came a lot later than I thought it did when I actually looked at the publication dates. The first... Second edition started in 1989. Yeah, it was... I thought it came way later than that for yeah. some reason. And for me, that Or way be, earlier than that, sorry. That was junior high. So I started playing it in junior high. And I played all the way through high school and all the way through college. And all the way into, like I said, started playing, you know, all the way up through through the uh, my years in the Army. So the, the time where I had the most free time and the most people around me with free time who were gamers was second edition. So when you talk about, like, my memories of D&D, like... For me, almost the definition of Dungeons Dragons is second edition. And there are a lot of people who agree with you, especially even going into my generation, because, like I said, I was born in 80. 1989, 90, 91, 92, that's when we were hitting that middle school age where a lot of people get hooked on role-playing games. That's what all my friends were playing was second edition D&D. Yeah. That's what really drew in a lot of the people of my age group they didn't play first edition, they played second edition, and how can because you tell, that's what was on the shelves. How can you tell it's a second edition D&D product? Well, it's got a black border and a Jeff Easley cover. <laughs> um, those are probably the two biggest ones I can think of off the top of my head. And they have this big, huge, complicated word, because apparently they started this big censorship move after the Mazes and Monsters Jack Trick thing. No demons, no devils, no monks, no assassins. Well, this is also... It's fair to point out that this is also... A period of time for TSR that was very turbulent. It was the, uh, what was her name? The the CEO that took over because Gary oh. was no longer in charge. God, you're asking me that now. There's okay, so there's this woman, and I can't remember on, her name. I've got the Lorraine. It's right Lorraine. Um, 
Uh, hang on. <laughs> Use the internet. <laughs> no, I've got I've got it open. So Lorraine Stop was in charge. Show me Lord of the Rings. I'm trying to find Lorraine. <laughs> and her family owned um, the Buck Rogers license. Yep. And this is when she was in charge of the company. And so there was a lot of things kind of going on behind the scenes of Second Edition that it's probably you could probably point to Lorraine's leadership of the company and. And you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any allegations about like what she did or didn't do, but I'm going to say that I Lorraine Williams Lorraine Williams I'm going to say that I believe <laughs> that Lorraine Williams is responsible for a lot of the the changes uh, that Daryl's talking about, like getting rid of the word demon, the word devil, getting rid of assassins. Well, it it was kind of a corporate takeover in a way from Gary. Basically, it became a uh, what happened was. Toward the end of first edition, TSR was starting to get a little bit cash-strapped and needed more capital to invest back into the game because they had two game lines running. They had the advanced and they had the basic running, and both were selling kind of equally well at that point. And they needed money to print more product to sell more games. So they started bringing in investors, one of which was Lorraine Williams. And again, I think we should just say we're not super historians... And most of this information is probably better found, you know, uh, <laughs> Wikipedia or Shannon oh, Apple Klein's book. Like I said, I'm going to have plenty of links in this right. to back up what I'm saying. But this so. is a this is an aspect of D and I'm completely fascinated with is William's takeover of TSR and the downfall of TSR and Wizards of the Coast taking over. Which because this, this is when that this is exactly when that happens is during the second edition D and D. Exactly. Of advanced and because so. and actually, I'm going to break away from that topic for a little bit so we can talk about second edition a little bit more well, and what I mean, might have what contributed to and might have what what might have contributed to that a little bit was second edition had a very very specific design paradigm. For one thing, they really wanted to eliminate anything that might be offensive to the Christian organizations like the 700 Club that were constantly attacking them. And they pulled out, there were no more demons, there were no more devils, there were there no were more Terry demons. and B- Badzu. You That's remember that a hell of a lot better than I do. Yeah, well, I just it, know them playing, as not demons and not devils. I've been playing an awful lot of uh, Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2, the enhanced edition. Oh, series, yeah. That, so. And th- this is also during the rise of Usenet, by the way. Yeah. And the formation of the internet, which really influenced a lot of this stuff we're talking about. Because the fans got a lot more direct, instant input as opposed to having to handwrite out a letter, put it in an envelope, stamp it, and mail it. Instead, you could send an email or post on the Usenet board. This sucks! Well, I think it was, I believe it was Roger Moore, who, the editor of Time, who was kind of the guy who who ultimately made the decision to change the names from Demons and Devils. And, and like I said... Like I said, I'm not entirely sure who made that call, but yeah. that was a big shift. There was also a paradigm when it came to the novel writing, and I've heard, uh, I've listened to a lot of talks with Ari Salvatore, who talked about this, where they completely shifted everything from, it used to be you could do pretty much whatever you wanted as long as you stayed within the genre boundaries, and then they handed down this edict. The bad guys must always lose, cannot gain from their loss... And must be utterly defeated by the heroes. Evil can never triumph in D and D. Wow! Yeah, and that's... that really crippled a lot of storytelling because yeah, the Xanatos Gambit, for God's sake. Well, let's you know, let's let's talk but... a little bit about novels too, because 
the second edition period of D and D. Yeah, is the, where... fir- the first to second transition is where the novels really blow up. That's where we got Dragonlance. That's where we got Salvatore well, and Dritzt. Yeah, for, well, because th- let's let's you know, there's there's a step back we can take even from that. Second edition is where they introduced a lot of different campaign settings. Yes, um, Forgotten Realms was probably the most impactful of all of them. I believe and it was it, actually the first they released. Was. Most likely, yeah. And and the thing is, is that they they had tons and tons of books coming out, novels. In fact, there were so many Dragonlance novels that even a fan, you know, passionate as myself, I I gave up. I just could not. They had one to two a month, and yeah. this will tie in later on when I start talking about the demise of TSR. Yeah, this was a big. So. Factor, there's a thing about returned books that became yes, a, a and big I will factor. Get, I will get into that in a moment. But yeah, yeah. we're talking about the novels themselves. There not, were a not lot the of game novels, books, the novels. The, yeah. no, the story novels where you could go into Barnes & Noble, Walden, at the time Balden, uh, Walden Books was still a thing, <laughs> in malls. And yeah. you could go and see them on the bestseller shelves. And there were a ton of them. And... Some of them are really, really, really good, and those are the ones everyone talks about. And most of them were, I'm sorry, complete never crap. Well, again, no hate. You, you were and very disappointed with most of them. That's fair to say. It was. Uh, All right. I could see they were trying so hard, but yes. because of the because of the publication schedule and everything else going on, I can understand why they turned out as, to use Ross's word, disappointing. <laughs> or to use my word, utter shit, that they were. Is Send your emails to Daryl at GamersTavern.org. at GamersTavern.org. <laughs> there you go. Um, please, but, please let him know what you think yeah, of Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead and leave a comment on the website, GamersTavern.org. But, <laughs> like I said, there were a lot of really, really, really awesome novels coming out at this time, but there was also a lot of crap, and it was... Because they were pushing out so many novels because it was such a good revenue stream for TSR at the time. They were hitting the boom of the... Here's the weird thing about the publication industry. And this is something I learned when I was working at the bookstore. When the economy takes a downturn, books become people's favored more form of entertainment. Because it gives them more bang for their buck in terms of time spent versus money spent. Your average reader is going to tear through a 300-page book in between 8 to 14 hours. Or they can spend, at this t- at this point in time, $5.99 bought you a book. How many pages did they get through in 8 to 8 hours? 300. 300. Okay. That, that's, the a- that's the average novel link, give or take, 25 right. to 50 pages. Well, for, the, for this genre, when you start yeah. getting into, like, Wheel of Time and everything else where you're talking about phone books, that's a completely different beast. Well, it's also important to point out, we mentioned this just briefly, but there were, uh, this is the era of lots and lots of campaign settings. So the novels weren't just Greyhawk novels, and they weren't just Dragonlance novels, and they weren't just Forgotten Realms novels. There were Dark Sun novels, and Spelljammer novels, and Ravenloft, and Planescape, and Maztica, and, and I mean, Birthright. You name it. Yeah, were there every Birthright setting. Novels? I can't remember. What? You you would know. Were there, were there Birthright novels? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was, okay. there was a whole line, and I own all of them. Um, so there's that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of like, I, I was disappointed with most of the Birthright, birthright novels, unfortunately. Um, now there it's, you go. And, and like I said, it's again because the economy at that point in time in Ravenloft history novels. was in a bit of a slump. It was called the Recession. You heard a lot about that. If you were alive during the time, during the uh, Reagan to Bush to Clinton transfer the recession, the recession, the recession, the recession. 
It was the buzzword of the time before there were buzzwords in media. But because of that, people wanted the most bang for the buck they can get. They could buy a VHS tape for $19.99 or $29.99 or pay their... At this point in time, when you wanted to get a membership fee to a video store, remember those things? Yeah. You had to actually pay money to get the membership fee in the first place before you could even rent the tapes for three or four bucks a pop. But a fantasy novel was only like two fifty, three dollars It was, but the, the cover price on those books was between three ninety nine and five ninety nine. Well, that's, I, well, I, okay, I, I'm going to say, I remember being lower, but that's, again, I got started earlier, so. Well, yeah, it also depends on exactly how early you're, t- you're talking about. I'm talking about the three ninety nine was pretty much the minimum for anything other than serial romance and westerns once you hit about the late eighties, early nineties. Well, okay, anything yeah. before anything before that, that's when you start hitting the they were like two fifty, you might see a one ninety five every once in a while. Yeah, I remember taking ten bucks and getting four books. So there yeah. you go. But um and, but it was a enough. big investment on time, and that's why the novels were doing so well. Then the economy started recovering. And the novel market started to tank. Well, they'd also flooded it. I mean, it's fair to say this because they also had Buck Rogers and Gamma World. And I mean, just like everything, you know, there was all these different things under the sun. And I think they just saturated the market with, as you say, a lot of, you know, sort of mediocre books. This is the early 90s. I'm going to say 91, 92, 93. I was, again, 90, uh, 9, uh, 11, 12, 13 years old. I was able to. I've said this before. I grew up in a bookstore. My mother owned this bookstore from when I was five years old until I was 21. So I went from, you know, putting books on shelves in nor- in numbers or numerical order or alphabetical order to I ended up being a manager of the place. I was doing purchasing and everything else. And this was about that time I was starting to learn how the publishing world worked from the independent bookseller point of view, which... For you kids out there, independent booksellers were bookstores that weren't Amazon or Walmart or Books a Million or Barnes and Noble. Little mom and pop shops. I, I remember them. There were quite a few. I know. Uh, used to be. Not yeah, anymore. I, used to be. That was that was me trying to make a lame joke. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we would get these trade magazines from our distributor, which at that point in time was called Ingrams, which would list all the books out and. They would do this magazine out monthly, and we would sit there and run them. If you're a comic book fan, it was very similar to the previews that you can get from your comic book store. And it was solicitations to retailers trying to convince you to stock this book. You would have between one to three per month coming from TSR via Random House at that point in time. And because I think to make a so much to make a long story short, what basically happened is the there were so many books and, and 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 so many of them weren't selling very well. There was a clause in the contracts for publishing where if the books don't sell well, all the bookstore really has to do is take them off the shelf, strip the cover off, and then mail it back to the publisher to get a rebate on those books. To get it like it's not a full refund, but they get some money back. And yeah. unfortunately, what happened to TSR is that they just had this huge flood of books coming back that weren't sold, that weren't being this, sold. This is, well, this is actually a slightly different thing than stripping a book. What happened was Random House had their warehouses full of stuff. They had warehouses stacked to the brim full of Forgotten Realms and Ravenloft and all these novels that were coming out. And 
yeah, I'm sitting in the bookstore stripping my one and two copies. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, at this point in time, that's when the real financial crunch started to hit TSR. And that's when uh, Lorraine Williams decided to play hardball with Random House. Listen, yeah, we have a- this we have this other series, and I wish to God I could remember what the series was, but it's like licensed fiction that was targeted at girls that they were trying to push. And Random House came back and said, Oh, I'm sorry, we actually have our y- YA group covered for girls for this age range with this license that we have through My Little Pony or Jim or Barbie or something else that was out at that time that was targeted to girls. And Lorraine Williams said, well, if you don't take these, we're going to ship them off. to. We're going to look at some other publisher. And Random House said, okay, look at your contracts. If we have any unsold merchandise in our warehouse, we can return it for a full refund after three months. We're now shipping back to you $1.8 million worth of unsold books. Yeah, we'd like a check now, please. That's exactly what happened, and that's what when TSR fell. So that moment. let's let's kind of move away from the whole discussion of the novels, and mm-hmm. let's talk briefly about what the game was doing at the time. Because I think most of these you know gamers they don't remember that, or they only were kind of peripherally aware of it. Um, but for me, like the part I remember about Second Edition was just the tons of different options for campaign settings. Some of which blew me away in how amazing and cool they were. Some really creative campaign settings came out during this time. There was Ravenloft and there was Dark Sun, Dark Sun, Planescape, Um, Planescape. These were all really cool. Some settings came out that I wasn't really that excited about. There was um, Mastika, which was part of Forgotten Realms. That was sort of a Mayan Aztec thing. I I didn't care for it, Um, but they tried really hard. They pushed a whole box set for it. There was um, Buck Rogers, the 25th Century, which was its own role playing game, which the less said about that, the better. I mean, I, I yeah. again, I don't want no hate, but I just, I didn't care for it. That was again Mo- Williams misrating the market. Well, she was trying to support her family's ownership of the IP. But yeah. anyway, there was uh, Forgotten Realms was probably the big shining star of this period. Greyhawk had kind of fallen out by the wayside in Second Edition, right? And Forgotten Realms by, the, by this point, everyone had forgotten Greyhawk, and everyone was focused on Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance. By which I mean. Tannis Half-Elf and Dritzed. Well, novel-wise, that's certainly true. I think, in my in my opinion, uh, from my experience, Forgotten Realms quickly overtook all of them and became kind of the standard. Forgotten Realms because kind there of became... was so much awesomeness in Forgotten Realms at that point in time. Well, there was. If you wanted your deep urban campaign, you had Waterdeep. If you wanted your more exploration-y thing, you could go up to Tin Towns. If you wanted something that was... They had their desert area they had uh, the the terrain yeah they had all these kinds of things but i think even more than that was the box set the original box set for forgotten realms is called the gray box and it is you know if you talk about ed greenwood you talk about how creative he is he's a very creative guy that that the original (laughs) the original gray box set i think is kind of like the concentrated awesome in my that is my biggest regret is i cannot get a copy of that God damn I I have I'm very proud to own 
two I different versions of that fucking hate you. Give me one now. <laughs> I, I can't. Or you're because, off the podcast. No, that's not how that works. <laughs> I know. Uh, but it's fair to say that, the, <laughs> in my opinion, that's where the most concentrated awesome was found, was in that. And then it kind of got developed even more through kind of ancillary stuff, like Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2. I mean, even... Uh, there was just all these sort of extra things that helped build up. Not in, not of the least of which was, of course, the novels about Elminster and the novels about Drizzt Doerden and the you know because his adventures all took place in the Forgotten Realms. Yes. So it felt like this, unlike Greyhawk, and I'm not sure why, but unlike Greyhawk, it just felt like a world that was really speaking to a lot of gamers. And I think the reason behind that might be. There was a lot more going on that, yeah, when you're reading the novels or you're playing, when you're reading the novels, yeah, you're seeing the high-level stuff, but there was still a lot of stuff going on beneath the surface. You never felt like you were the puppet to Elminster or Dritz. You weren't playing second fiddle to them well, in Forgotten yeah, Realms because it was so big. Well, Depending okay, it, on it, it, the module or video disagree. game you play. I'm going to disagree with you, Daryl. Okay, I, I'm going to say this. From the gray box set, I didn't feel like I was a puppet. But once you start bringing in Pages from the Mages, the Seven Sisters, uh, once you start bringing in the additional content, Forgotten Realms Adventures, the hardback book, you do start to really feel that. And, and this is, you know, unfortunately, I think probably one of the biggest flaws of Forgotten Realms. You do feel like there are all these super powerful NPCs that just control everything. And there's no real room for heroes to make much of a difference in that world that is presented when you kind of go outside that green box. And that's, I mean, that's my honest opinion on it. I and know I'm completely kind of not going to disagree with you on that at all. I think our difference of opinion on this is solely in timing okay. as to exactly when you start feeling overshadowed. I, I started it after the gray box, but that's just me. So, I mean, I, I, I'm curious to hear where you think it started. Uh, I think it started a little bit later on, closer to the closer to the end game after Wizards of the Coast had bought out TSR. Oh no! And no, no, they no, start no. putting out crap. Oh no! I think I'm that's sorry. when I, I, I disagree think it started happening with that. <laughs> I think I think that's very. I think that's much later in that period. I'm completely not going to disagree with you on that, All but. Right. This is also not an era of game that I was experiencing as it happened. Okay. Because again, I was born in 1980. I actually, and again, I came in through this backwards ass sort of way. Right. I didn't really start getting into D and D until third edition. Okay, well, let's let me just say this then to, to finish up Forgotten Realms. Although it has its flaws, and it kind of it has it has certainly morphed into something almost unrecognizable from its original state. Forgotten Realms is still a very cool setting, and still has a lot of really cool things to offer to a fantasy gamer. And they worked would, very, very hard yeah. over the editions, over since third edition, to try to get away from that. The NPCs overshadow the PCs There's, with well, varying levels of success yeah. in doing so. Let's. I. I want. I eventually want to get Rich Baker on the show to talk about Forgotten Realms because he would be great to uh, to discuss it because he kind of shepherded it through third and fourth edition. Yeah. Particularly fourth edition. So it would be kind of interesting to hear from him. But um, let let's kind of table Forgotten Realms for now and just say. I have very fond memories of it in, in certain aspects. But I do want to talk about my favorite, my personal favorite campaign setting. And, and, it's and, and, it's, one, it's, and I have to say, it's actually one of my least favorite campaign <laughs> settings. <laughs> well, that's just good. You know, it makes for good radio, but Birthright. Yeah. 
Birthright is my all-time favorite D&D campaign setting, and I've written a huge review of it on my blog. And I'll just, you know, kind of paraphrase it here to say the reason why I, th- I love Birthright to death, and I love it just beyond all, is it had this unique, semi-historical, semi, uh, you know, sort of classic fantasy with a lot of the high magic things that were taken say, out. I will say this about Birthright. Now, like I said, it's probably my least favorite campaign setting but that's solely because i look at it and i say eh, and i looked at it before something that really would have shaped it if i had looked at it game after of thrones. i watched <laughs> game of thrones yeah. and read a song of fire and ice if, if you, i would have gotten a yeah. lot more into See, that's, it that's that's kind of the thing is that birthright is really kind of game of thrones before game of thrones exactly it has, it has all these elements to it where you can rule a nation and it's got this in my opinion, very brilliantly designed rule set that is a domain level of control. Because it's very much about bloodlines and who's in charge well, and ruling have... kingdoms and princedoms and fiefdoms. Well, you don't have to play it that way. You can just run Birthright as your typical, like, we're out adventuring and doing things. And it, it fully supports that with some really cool, like, twists and turns. Like, I love the fact that elves are actually, like, considered one of the ancient enemies of mankind in Birthright. And that might be why I didn't dig it as much, because... If you've heard our Shadowrun podcast, I'm in love with elves. Yeah, but these are not, your, but these are not your typical Greyhawk elves either. These are like the She or the Shaleen. They call themselves the Shaleen, actually, which is yeah. very close to the She. They're they're more based off of almost like the Welsh legends of the of the uh, the Athena She. It's it's and okay, if Welsh. To Google that, I can't it pronounce is spelled it. S I D H E. I can't pronounce it right, but in 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 it's plain she. phonetics. The what I'm talking about is the Tuatha de Danann. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, and some some listener from Wales can sure, certainly correct me. But the Tuatha de Danann is how, what I was thinking of when when you think of uh, Birthright Elves. But it's not just that either. There's, uh, you know, I'm not going to spend the whole episode talking about Birthright, but I, but I could. Yeah. And I'm just going to say I love Birthright. I think it's brilliant and unique and a neat way to play D and D that is very similar to its roots, but at the same time provides something new. And if you want to skim back to our Ravenloft episode yeah. with Ari Marmel, Ross could talk about Birthright more than I can talk about Ravenloft, if that will tell you anything. <laughs> so let's let's ask you, Daryl, what's your favorite second edition setting, if you, if you have one? I just mentioned it, Ravenloft. Ravenloft. I mean, well, Ravenloft down for how much, <laughs> how awesome is it that they gave DM fiat a personification in the setting wow. i love the powers i love the way the first the first movie i saw in a movie theater was fright night yeah I hear that you. really influenced me and in we did, everything we've, so we've i've gone over Ravenloft this pretty heavily <laughs> so yeah that's why i'm kind of glossing over this but yeah i love ravenloft ravenloft was hands down my favorite setting but one thing I do have to touch on when it comes to second edition is two settings we've spoken about a lot, but we haven't actually discussed. One I love, one I don't love as much, to put it in <laughs> Ross's terms. Uh, the one I love is Planescape. Yeah, you can't talk about second edition and campaign settings without talking about Planescape. Because, because it, was it merged unique. all this crap. Well, that it was... they were. Well, I, I I say crap in terms of g- general miscellaneous stuff. I don't mean it as a derogatory term. All these campaign settings they were pushing out at the time, Planescape was the 
God, I'm making a pun. The spire on which all of these rested. No, that's, well, it's more than that, though. I think Planescape is, is, is special not because it connects all of them. Planescape is special because it had it, its own feel and flavor that was completely distinct. And I've, I've, I'm trying not to use the word unique, but it is unique. Completely distinct from all the other settings that are out there. Planescape had a, a vision. Tony Dieterlizzi did all this artwork for it and the, the trade dress and covers uh, for the game. And, I mean, I just can't explain, but it's so bizarre and so different from uh, D&D that when you play Planescape or when you, you read it even, just kind of, you know, see those um, the factions and the uh, lingo that they use in, in Sigil, it's it's brilliant. And even the concept of the Lady of Pain <laughs> is so unique to Planescape compared to every way every single other god is presented in D and D. Yeah, because and again, I'm pretty much completely ripping off Noah Antwaller, aka Spoony One, on this one. But the Lady of Pain is probably the most fascinating goddess in the entire D and D pantheon to me because she does not. Every single other deity gets their power through worshippers. The Lady of Pain actively punishes anyone who tries to worship her. Yeah. And that should... she will hunt you down and kill you horribly We've if you got try to, get... to worship her. We've got to get Spoonie on the show this time, and we got to talk about Lady of Pain. So I'm absolutely. working on it, man. <laughs> so, but, yeah. yeah, so Planescape but is the one. What's the other one? What's the one you don't the like? The so bad one? Space hamsters, man. Come on. Plain... You're talking about Spelljammer. Yes. Okay, Spelljammer is goofy. And, and Spelljammer is ships amongst hold the on. stars. Hold on, Daryl. Daryl. Oh. I'm gonna say this. I agree with you that it is a goofy setting. There is some weird stuff that you look at and you're like, really? Because like one of the core races are basically hippo men, and they're they're just not very good. I mean, I, I never Again, could get hippo men. I couldn't. I couldn't understand the hippo men. However. However, that having been said, there are things in play in, in Spelljammer that are really cool. If the, you I, like the, Spelljammer, I would like to apologize now for what I'm about to say, but I have to say this. Every excuse I gave Expedition to Barrier Peaks for its weirdness, I am retracting for Spelljammer because by this point in time, they should have known better. Well, Spelljammer, like I said, I feel like it had some parts that were really cool. To me, I like the idea that I can take a ship and travel from one setting to another setting. And in that in, in that regard, I regard Spelljammer as what made Spelljammer really unique was that, you know, where you were saying, you know, you were saying Planescape was the spire on which they were all built. For me, that's actually Spelljammer. I like that I could go from Dragonlance to the Forgotten Realms in okay. my ship. So there's that. But Okay, I do have to frame my Spelljammer disappointment by saying <laughs> that I really think the DM who ran Planescape for me, that sort of cosmology, probably borrowed a lot from Spelljammer and cut out all the wacky shit. Well, it's fair to say that there is a a lot of goofy stuff in Spelljammer. I agree with you on that. However, I ran a, I ran a game of Spelljammer I thought was really fun. My players really enjoyed it. That does not mean that it's like objectively great. You know, I we can certainly say that it's got a lot of flaws, and I will agree with you that it has a lot of flaws. But at the same time, I I know it sounds like I'm defending it, um, and I kind of am because I just, I just feel like there was <laughs> there were some really good ideas in there that maybe the execution 
didn't come across real well, and, and I, I'll, I'll go ahead and agree with that, that the execution was, was, was deeply, deeply flawed. Um, but I, I still want to say, and I, I, I think you might even agree with me, that there are some really good ideas that are sort of buried in there. There were some good ideas that were buried <laughs> in there, but most right. of the giant space hamsters flying pirate ships in the stars. Listen, I'm for for the listeners, <laughs> for the listeners I'm going to say this, I think it's worth looking at and worth getting some ideas from and I, it's absolutely worth trying out if it's if it at all sounds interesting to you because I unlike Daryl, I do feel like there's some things in there that are that are cool and, and I and, want and to reiterate, this is my opinion. Right. This is not objective fact. If you love Spelljammer, I'm not dissing you. Well, it's you're it's awesome. Also, I don't care. It's just it is. Oh my god, it's so not for me. Well, it was definitely a niche product. Um, yes, and it it probably it didn't help that. I mean, this is one of the things also that drove TSR under was that there were so many campaigns. Niche prod. Niche, it, it niche kinda, after it, niche after niche it, after niche. You, you could here. Here's the thing about that era. And this is one of the th- few things I remember, because this was about the time D and D really started to. Oh, hey, I can go behind my parents' back and play D and D. Started hitting for me was around the end of Second Edition when when this transfer started happening from TSR to Wizards of the Coast. There was a big fracture in the fan base where it was less I play D and D, and it was more I play Ravenloft, I play Forgotten Realms, I play Planescape, I play Dark yeah. Sun. Well, it's and also, that really fractured the fan base. Let's also point out one other thing. I mean, we mentioned this in the RMR Mill episode, but also this is also the ascension of White Wolf, where it was seriously competing. Uh, it was seriously drawing some of that business away. Um, and again, if I if I sound like an idiot on this podcast talking about my interpretations <laughs> at the time, I want to give you the timeline of what was going on. This is mid to late 90s. This is like 95 to 98 when this shit was going on. At this point in time, I am like neck deep in Magic the Gathering. Which is also the thing yeah and they're just tsr it's it's fair to say tsr split its attention so many different ways that they were not getting a solid revenue stream from any of them Spelljammer and uh dragon dice i believe dragon were dice, the two yeah. games they tried to pull off and they just fell flat on their faces spell fire spell, spell fire. fire spell fire yeah yes. spell fire and dragon dice yeah and um so let's talk about like the end of second edition they had these things called the player's option books that came out and this was, in my opinion, one of the the start of what became the biggest problem with every edition thereafter, which is the bloat. <laughs> okay, so players' option books. You know, my friends and I, we picked these up, and this actually started... Not started. This, this helped me on my journey to be a game designer. Now, I, I've talked a little bit about... Um, Champions, when Champions came out, and, and how the big blue book of Champions got me started tinkering with, with rules, and, and I really kind of owe a lot of my game design And to really put this interest. in the timeline for people, the player's options started coming out. This is post-Shadowrun, post-Battletech. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade had just hit the shelves. Well, it's, it's 95-ish, you know, I mean, it's... Yeah, it is. Vampire's been this out is, a few years at this point, but yeah. Yeah, this is... But it's still brand new on the era, but these games are completely take, taking everything D&D had done at this point 
and breaking kind of breaking it down and deconstructing it and kind of trying to reconstruct what a role playing game is. Well, let and you, a lot yeah. of these things TSR was kind of scrambling to implement them onto their old system. Well, okay, let's to be to be fair, what I'm saying is I I thought players options pushed me a little more towards a game designer because they allowed you to sort of build classes from the ground up. And they allowed you to build races. abilities and races. And, and there was so we, much stuff in those books. We probably my my gaming group embraced it wholeheartedly for about a year. And I want to say we tinkered and constructed and built just about everything we possibly could out of the uh, the player's option books. But what we discovered, my experience at least with this, is we discovered that the player's option books unfortunately offered us a chance to build broken stuff very easily. This and was pretty much the start. This was the break between two mentalities of Munchkin. At the, at the time, if you tried to min-max or you showed up with the character, it's like, yes, I rolled this fair. Yeah, I rolled four 18s. Okay, well, let's... let's and then that we're, happened. We're, that was the old school Munchkin. Totally well, okay, you can't And then say this is when we started there's getting a difference into what's between called the character optimization. Character optimization is exactly where I was going. I was, well, Munchkins a, are a different be, discussion. Let's be clear. There's a difference between cheating and optimization. They so, are not breaking the rules. Right. They're using the rules creatively yeah, let's, to let's be clear about that. break the game. So, let, But the player's option, I think there's a difference between character optimization and what player's option was doing as well. Because you could build a character who was definitely better than anybody else with, characters, with player's option. But I think, at least the the experience I had with it is that we eventually just kind of drifted back to second edition because we didn't care for there there was just almost too much you know D Dungeons and Dragons is almost defined by a lot of mechanics that are part and parcel of what it is. If there's no magic missile, if there's no armor class. You know, you you don't really have Dungeons and Dragons kind. Of, I, I I'm I know I'm really reaching kind of uh, in a different tangent here. And this is a debate we're going to get into a little bit later when we start talking about fourth edition, especially. Fair enough. Fair so. enough. But but players option. Um, my experience with it was we just tinkered with it for a while and then we kind of abandoned it. So there's that. And my problem is again, this may be the Southeast Texas Golden Triangle group that I grew up in. I had a hard problem saying no to people. I wasn't really running games in 2nd Edition. This became a bigger problem when I did start running games regularly, and D&D really caught my interest in 3rd Edition. But Player's Option was the start of this, where you had so much stuff out there for player characters to use. And I hate to do the PC versus DM thing, or player versus DM thing, but that's kind of where you started to get this mentality was people would go through players options and start pulling out this random stuff and put it in their character and then spring it on the dm at the last minute well it, and it's also it's really hard and it's yeah. one of those things where the dm really 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 has to have the ability to say no you should have cleared that with me first and i would have said no then well, something else is to, to keep in mind is, like, all of the monsters and encounters and, and published material wasn't really oriented for player's option characters. They were designed for that paradigm of, you know, second edition with set classes and set class abilities. And if I if all of a sudden I can roll Castle Ravenloft with a thief who can also cast Sunray, 
<laughs> you know, it's it, we it's it's a whole new ball game. You know, that's all I'm saying. So yeah, I, I can understand why it left a bad taste in your mouth. I don't consider it a high point of second edition. I think the high point of second edition was probably the early books and you know the campaign settings and things like yeah, that. Yeah, the campaign but, settings were brilliant. They were imaginative, yeah. but again, they divided the player base, which was yeah. a great move for gaming, a bad move business wise. So that is going to take us out of second edition. Going to take us out of the Lorraine Williams and into the Watsi and into third edition. But like I said earlier, that's going to have to wait for its own podcast when we get into the Wizards of the Coast era of D and D. But stay tuned because the next episode of the Gamers Tavern, we're joined by Sam Stewart and Sean Patrick Fannin as we discuss what may be your New Year's resolution: getting a job in the gaming industry. If you're in the area in terms of Texas, uh, you may be interested in Space City Con, which is in Galveston, Texas, from January 3rd through the 5th. I will be there, and you can find out more information about the convention at SpaceCityCon.com. Ross, however, will be in Austin, Texas, January 17th through the 19th at Chupacabra Con, which you can find out about at ChupacabraCon.com and for God's sakes, no, I'm not spelling that here on the podcast. Please check the show notes because fuck. Uh, anyway, uh, Ross will also be in February at GingasCon, which is a convention he has talked about repeatedly on the podcast. It's one of his favorites. If you're in the Aurora, Colorado area through February 13th through the 16th, Definitely go there and check out Ross. He's going to be running a lot of events there. And you can find out more at denvergamers.org. Now, aside from where we're going, you guys have been in contact with us very recently. And it's awesome. I love all the feedback we've been getting from the website and from Facebook and everywhere else. It's great. We love hearing from our fans. The first thing we got up here is from Dravicius and... I apologize if I mangled that pronunciation of your username, but kind of give us something to go on, maybe, and I won't butcher this as much. I'm sorry if I did, but yeah, usernames are kind of a pain in the ass. Anyway, he or she says... Daryl, just wanted to say it's nice to hear someone who is as enthusiastic about Shadowrun as I am. I still remember the first edition rulebook at my local Crown Books, and after flipping through the book for a few minutes, I just knew I had to have it. Ever since, it's been my favorite setting and system, but unfortunately have only played a handful of games, as I always get tapped for my game group to run it, one of the problems with knowing a system slash setting so well. Have you ever thought of running an actual play podcast? Okay, Devicious. <clears throat> Again, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, yeah, this was obviously from episode 7, which was our Shadowrun episode of the podcast, which... Ross and I just completely geeked out over Shadowrun. Uh, it's probably 
yeah, don't make me pick children from Gamer's Tavern. I'm really impressed with all the advances we've made since then and all the upgrades and audio quality and what we've learned in terms of podcasting and editing and everything else. But I'm sorry, the Shatterman episode is still my favorite. It's the only podcast where, for you guys to know, I'm the engineer on this show. I edit everything. I sit there and splice everything together. I'm the guy who creates these shows in terms of I take the raw audio and I make something listenable for you, the audience. I work like eight hours a week listening to this over and over again to get an episode done. The Shadowrun episode is the only episode since we have started in the past three months where I've gone back downloaded the episode, and listened to it again. That's how much I love the Shadowrun episode, so I'm really glad that you guys are loving it. Now, I understand the, the frustration in trying to get a Shadowrun game together. Everyone around here is all about D&D, 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 and D&D. I might be able to get a Star Wars game together, but eh, no, everyone wants to play D&D. But I love Shatterman so much, I kind of shove it down people's throats. Which isn't the best approach. But, I really want to let you know, it's one of the better systems for running games online. Through, like, Google Hangouts or Skype or any of these other streaming media. Uh, I'd send you to the forums over at Shatterman.com or to dumpshock.com and see if there's an online game going on that you might want to jump into if you're just wanting to play the game instead of running it. Or you can run a game and feel free to email me, abstrusegamerstavern.org. I might want to play in your game, but be warned, I may end up being that guy because I've read all the fucking books and I'm kind of a bitch about continuity when it comes to Shadowrun. I'm so sorry to all my Shadowrun Game Masters out there who've had to run games where I was playing. I am so, so sorry. I can't help myself. Uh, anyway, as far as other podcasts go, I'd be lying if I said we didn't have plans for Gamers Tavern beyond the core podcast. I spent two months before we even launched back in October planning several different things to go along and build off this podcast. This is this podcast here that you're listening to was kind of the center spire for everything that I was wanting to expand into. And I'd have to say that live play podcasts are definitely high on that list. And I've just invested a huge chunk of cash in upgrading our audio equipment so, yeah, just in the preliminary stages of everything that's going on, I really don't want to commit to anything because I don't know what's going to happen and what's not going to happen in the future. But I want you to know that I'm really trying to cut down on the editing time I'm spending on every episode so I can devote more time on these other side projects and so I can increase the quality of the show and so I can make things easier on our guests and lots of other things that are going on. But yeah, we do plan on expanding. Live play podcasts are on the list. I'm not going to say 
what we're going to do because I don't want to promise something that things may come up and we may not be able to deliver. But as soon as we know something is cemented that we're going to do it, we will definitely let you know either through Facebook, Twitter, or through our website, GamersTavern.org. Okay, enough for self-promotion. Let's do a little bit of a different self-promotion on Facebook as Andreas Schar. Again, I'm so sorry if I'm butchering that. Um, anyway, Andreas says, Hey guys, just wanted to say that I love the podcast. I found the Shadowrun episode recently, which got me hooked. Ever since I've been listening to that episode, I have been listening to one episode a day, trying to make them last up until your most recent episodes. Keep up the good work. Andreas, I want to thank you very, very much for your feedback. It is great to hear from our fans. I'm glad you're loving the show. And, again, it looks like our Shadowrun episode's kind of an entry vector for listeners. I hope our D&D episodes you just listened to will be just as much of an entry vector. But, yeah, I, we love the game. We love D&D. We, both of us are passionate about gaming. Insanely so. Uh, it actually came to the point where... About two or three weeks ago, I was feeling so burned out. I'm like, oh my god, I'm spending so much time working on this podcast about gaming and writing this column about gaming. I'm just so sick of dealing with gaming. I really need to find something to just separate from gaming. I know what, I'm going to watch episodes of Will Wheaton's Tabletop on YouTube. That was my escape from the podcast about gaming was to watch more shows about gaming. That's how much I love this hobby. And Ross, for God's sake, this is his day job. He has made a career out of designing and creating games. So, as passionate as I am about it, he's a hundred times more so. So, yeah, we're always glad anytime anyone is interested in this. So, yeah, uh... Unfortunately for you, Andreas, you said you're trying to pace this out an episode a day, and we've only been around for about three months at this point, and while we've got some stuff simmering on the back burner to satiate your appetite for more Gamers Tavern, uh, the main podcast is going to have to hold you for a little while longer, and we only release that every Thursday evening. I'm so sorry. I wish I could do more, but there's always things to get in the way. But we're really glad you're listening. We're really glad you're a fan. And we hope you keep listening. And speaking of side projects and the cooking metaphor I made earlier with the back burner thing, I don't know how many of you actually go to the site at GamersTavern.org, but I've been posting some of my cooking tips to feed all your hungry gamer friends. I've been kind of emptying the vault when it comes to my culinary treasures on the site. All my tricks and tips and secret recipes have been spewing forth on the website when it comes to... I'm really passionate about cooking. I'm a big fan of Alton Brown and Good Eats, and I really think people should be cooking at home and creating foods instead of ordering out or getting delivery everything. It, it means a lot more when you make it yourself. Because you know what goes into it, you take a lot more care into it, and it just, your passion can come through in the food. And that's how I feel about it, so, it's my website, it's my blog, I'm gonna fucking talk about it. If you don't like it, 
scroll past it. I'm sorry if you don't, but yeah, tough shit. I'm going to talk about it because I love food. And please check out the blog if you have any comments or if you have any recipes of your own or if you have any dishes you would like me to talk about, go to GamersTavern.org and let me know. So, anyway, if you'd like to comment on this episode or read more about what's going on in the blog, please visit us at GamersTavern.org and let us know what you think. While you're there, make sure to visit our sponsors and click on the donate button to support the show. And you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gamers tavern or on Twitter at gamers tavern PC as in podcast. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons non-commercial no derivatives license 3.0. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Gamers Tavern podcast, and until next time, gamers, the tavern is closed.